In full disclosure, I was really hoping to show you a video of Carolina's parade after winning the national championship, but it just wasn't meant to be this year for us. But Baylor University started their men's basketball program in 1907, and so after 114 years of playing basketball last year, they won their first ever NCAA national championship, 114 years of wishing and hoping and praying, and finally it happened. Finally, the team reached this moment that they had been striving for. They reached this climax and carved their name in history, and finally they claimed this title that they have been waiting for over a century to hold on to. And the days after the victory, the whole city of Waco, Texas, which is where Baylor at, was buzzing with energy. Die-hard Baylor fans were ecstatic. Bandwagon fans were thrilled. And even those people who weren't fans and didn't follow basketball, they couldn't help but kind of be called up in the excitement, and they just couldn't resist the enthusiasm uh, and that was flowing through the streets, and, and everybody was wearing the green and gold of the Baylor Bears, and, and the streets were just filled and crowded with people ready to cheer and celebrate this team. And so as people gathered for this parade, a good portion of the city gathered, and they watched as, as dancers came down. That they, they marched and they, they, they danced as the marching band came down the streets, and they rallied and they cheered as the cheerleaders made their way uh, through the parade route, and then some of the alumni remembered their fighting song that, that had been there since 1907, and they, they began to sing the chorus of that fight song as, as the band marched through the crowd, and then came the coach walking through, and the players come walking through or riding through the city, and, and just there's just so much excitement. There were confetti cannons and steam cannons going off through different parts of the city, all making their way to this place in the city center where there were going to be these speeches, and the whole city was almost in a frenzy by the time that the team reached this stage and in celebration and praise of this team that had come and finally accomplished this mission that they had started 114 years ago. And I show you that video. I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of the Baylor Bears. They're a pretty good team, uh, but I'm not a huge fan of them. But I show you that video because in my mind, that's what it looked like when Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem for the first time in Matthew chapter 21 which is where we're going to be this morning. I know some of you guys have been with us for a while, and your Bible just automatically opened to Hebrews. Just flip back a few pages. We're going to be in Matthew this week. We'll be in Acts next week, and then we'll get back into Hebrews the week after that. But in Hebrews, or excuse me, I'm so used to saying it. In Matthew chapter 21, uh, we find that Jesus has been riding, or he's been uh, going around Jerusalem or around Israel, and uh, the city of Jerusalem is packed. And, and we call this Palm Sunday, and it's the start of this Holy Week. And uh, man, it, just like in that video, the streets are alive. Man, there, there's so much energy flowing through as the people welcome Jesus into this city. And so this morning, we're going to look at this story that, like I said, may be very familiar to us. You, you may have heard uh, Palm Sunday. You may have heard the triumphal entry of Jesus multiple times. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I have preached not Matthew's version of it, but Luke's version of it, Mark's version of it. And there's parts of Matthew's um, a part a story they're just so beautiful and so this is one of those stories that that sometimes we read and we're just like oh yeah i've heard this before same thing every year same time every year the same palm sunday message every year but i've got to share with you there is some challenging things in this passage you see, when we consider this passage, I want you to pay attention. When we start reading through the first 11 verses, I want you to pay really close attention to verse 10. 
Because in verse 10, there's a challenge both in the middle, or excuse me, at the beginning, and at the end of the verse. There's a question at the end of the verse that some of you sitting here and some of you watching online, you may find yourself asking that question of who is this? Who is this we're talking about? Who is this Jesus that we've sang about and that we've worshipped? Who is this? And I'm going to be honest with you, we're going to spend a good portion of our time this morning answering that question, who is this that, that is coming? Who is this that we're so excited about? And then for the rest of us, our challenge is not the end of the verse. Our challenge is the beginning of the verse. Our challenge is to be in that crowd, just like you saw in that video, that is so excited about what is coming and who is coming down the street that we just can't hold it back anymore. And so I want you to, to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21 if you haven't already. And like I said, we're going to read the first 11 verses together. And, and so uh, Hebrew, or Matthew chapter 21 verse 1 starts off, it says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them, and immediately he will send them. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Verse 5, Tell daughter Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their robes on the road, and others were cutting down branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowd went ahead of them, and those who followed them or followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, this is the part I want you to pay attention to. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds kept saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray together. Our King forever, Lord Most High, God, we thank you for this moment that we have. God, we thank you that as we talked a few weeks ago that we have this privilege to be in this place, in this moment in time. God, to share with those that are around us the, the glory of who you are, the greatness of what you have done. God, that we should be so excited for what you have done and the powers that you possess. God, not just for what we read about you in this book, even though that is amazing, but what you have done in our lives individually. God, I pray this morning as we work through this text, God, that we, we consider that question of who is this? But God, for some of us, that's not the question we need to work with. But God, for some of us, that may be the very question we need to be considering this morning. Who is this Jesus? And so God, I pray this morning that if that's the question we came searching for an answer, God, that you meet us there and you give us that answer this morning. But God, for some of us, we already know that answer. And the question is, are we responding to that answer? God, the question for many of us this morning, is our praise sufficient for the one that we know the answer to that question of? And so, God, I pray, God, that you will speak to us and you will meet us this morning. 
God, I pray that you will use your text in a beautiful and powerful and mighty way. God, that when we leave this place, God, we don't leave here the same way that we walked into this place. God, that when we leave here this morning, God, that we leave here with a passion and a desire to spread your gospel, God, with a passion and desire to shake this city for you because of what you've done for us. So, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that we are ready to hear your word and be moved by your power this morning, Father. God, let us be changed and amazed at who you are and what you've done for us this morning. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the early 1950s, there was a gentleman who uh, was a manager of a brewery. And uh, I, don't, I don't talk a lot about managers of brewery. In fact, I don't even know many managers of breweries. But this was one I read about in the history books. And uh, he, he went on a hunting group or a hunting party with a group of managers. And I don't know if it was a team building thing, but they were all going out there. And they were all going uh, bird hunting together. And so as these men were out there, kind of like a bunch of men do when you're out there and maybe there's not any birds, they, they start talking with each other. And, and so they, they got into this argument over what was the fastest game bird in Europe, right? So he's in England, and, and actually in Ireland, sorry, and, and they're, they're questioning each other, who is, what's the fastest game bird in all of Europe? And, and so you've got to understand, this is back before the days of Google, this was back before you just looked at your phone and said, hey Siri, what's the fastest game bird in Europe? And it pops up with the answer, okay? Kids, you may not understand this, we didn't have those growing up, okay? We didn't have all the answers, we just had to ask the questions. We, we had to look for them. And so in the 1950s, he didn't have the answer, and so after they they got out of the field, they went back to the hunting lodge, and, and, and they, they started looking through some of the books that were there in the hunting lodge, and they started looking for some reference books, and they couldn't find anything that answered their question. They couldn't find any, anything to, to give them the answer as what was the fastest game bird in Europe. And so they kind of forgot about it for a while, but a few years later, uh, Sir Beaver remembered his hunting party argument and how he was how they were unable to settle this dispute. And so he came up with this idea uh, that, that he thought was a wonderful idea. He came up with this idea that would do two things. One, it was going to allow him to prove his point. But two, he was going to use this as a marketing scheme or a marketing idea for the brewery that he worked for, that he was a manager of, right? So what he did uh, was that he, uh, he hired a set of twin brothers named Norris and Ross McRider, um, and, and these were fact-finding researchers. And the goal of hiring these two men was they would compile and publish a book of facts and figures that could be used to settle arguments that happened in a pub, right? So if you were in a pub or a bar, their arguments break out. They happen all the time, and sometimes those arguments get a little heated, and sometimes they, they, they turn a little physical. And so the goal of this book, they were going to give this book away to bartenders um, who were, 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 would buy their, their beer. And, and so with the goal of, hey, if an argument breaks out in your pub before it turns into a fist fight, just break out this book and look up the facts. And you would have it and you could settle the argument there. And so this guy thought this was a great idea, and so he, he convinced the, the, the management to do this. And so uh, for months, these two brothers, they researched, and then they started writing this book together. And, and it became an all-time bestseller, one of the most recognized and trusted brands in the world. But unfortunately, the very first and never has any of the editions of the Guinness World Book of Records ever addressed the very first question that was set out to address. What is the fastest bird or game bird in Europe? 
They never addressed that in that first edition, and they've never addressed it in any edition since this. Now, to be fair, their website does say that most likely the answer is the red-breasted merganster, I think is how you say that. But but they they can't verify that, right? And so they don't publish that in their book because they can't verify it. You see, even the Guinness World Book of Records, the Guinness Book of Records as we called, uh, their fact finders couldn't gather all the facts because they lacked the first thing that we see about Jesus. Jesus in this passage and the first thing that that Jesus demonstrates to us through this passage you see if Jesus was interested in writing for the Guinness World Book of Records he could very easily tell you what the fastest game bird in Europe is and not only could he tell you the species of the fastest game bird in Europe but he could tell you which of that species was the fastest he could tell you how many feathers that particular bird had and where that bird was at that exact moment you see Jesus defeats all the Guinness World Book of Records because he is an all-knowing God he possesses divine Divine knowledge that you and I do not have and we can hardly even comprehend at time. And he demonstrates that knowledge in the preparation of this event that we talked about, the preparation of this, this entry into the city of Jerusalem. And he does it in two different ways and really in two different times. And both of them are quite amazing. So three years Jesus has been traveling around to different parts of Israel, and he's been teaching and demonstrating his authority through miracles. And, and this time of year, he is like most of the other people of Israel. He is, he is going to make his way to the city of Jerusalem. They're getting ready to celebrate their biggest festival of the year, their biggest religious celebration of the year called Passover. Right Now, some of you may be familiar with that. Some of you may not be. But Passover is, is, is somewhat our Christmas and Easter and, and uh, Independence Day all rolled into one. For the Jewish people, it was the day that they became a nation. It was the day they were, 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 they were allowed to leave Egypt as slaves. And so the day they were emancipated. And so they celebrate this every year. And this is a massive celebration. The whole nation converges on the city of Jerusalem to celebrate their deliverance from slavery. And so for the, weeks le- or the week leading up to this, Jesus and his disciples, along with, with several other Israelites, have been kind of converging and making their way to the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is on his way there, just like most of the other people there. And, and, and verse 1 tells us that he's starting to get close. He's not quite there yet, but verse 1 starts off, it says, And when they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethsaida at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples. So they're on their way, and they come to this village called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is a, a small little village. It's about a half mile, maybe a little more than that, to the east of Jerusalem. And a lot of people kind of use it as a rest stop. Like, this is your, your last stop before you enter the big city. Okay? So if you... And it was also your last your first stop on the way out. So if you need to freshen up, you need to, to, to repack stuff, this is your chance to do it. So it's a common little kind of stopping place for folks to stop and, and then get their stuff together and then ride into the city. But you got to understand that as Jesus Jesus is doing this like everybody else coming into Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is packed. Bethsaida is packed. There's no place for them really to stop. And so sometimes they're, they're stopping on the side of the road. And, and so as they get to this little town, or right before they get to this little town, Jesus sends two of his disciples kind of on this special mission. Now, we don't know which of the two of the twelve it was. None of the Gospels tell us their names. We just know that it's two of them. And he sends them on this mission. In verse 2, it tells us what that special mission was. In verse 2, Jesus tells them, he says, Go into the village ahead of you. And once you find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. 
Now, I want you to see that this is a very specific request. He didn't just send them into the city and say, hey, go find an animal for me to ride in. He's very specific. He says, I want you to go and I want you to find a donkey. And then specifically find a female donkey, but not just any female donkey. Find a female donkey that has a colt that's there with her. And once you find those two, this specific donkey and her colt, by the way, it's going to be really easy. As soon as you walk in there, this is where they're going to be at. So when you find them, untie them and bring them back to me. Right? And so go in this town that you're not from. Go in this town that you don't live in. Go in this town where you may have never been before. If you have, you were just a visitor. Go in this town where you don't know anybody. And then walk out with two animals that don't belong to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of these disciples, I'm like, I don't know if this is such a good idea, Jesus. Like, I know you know everything, but this seems a little sketch here. Like, what, what's going to happen? Because I know there's going to be some people that may not be too excited when these two strangers show up and start untying their donkeys and heading out of town with them. So what are we supposed to do when somebody asks us, what are you doing? What are we supposed to do when the, the local police pull us over and ask to see our donkey registration cards? Or what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to, what are we going to, how are we going to, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but the Romans are here and the Romans are here, they're, they're kind of occupying us and they don't take donkey thieves very lightly, all right? Most donkey thieves are killed on the spot. In fact, most thieves are killed on the spot. And if you're not killed on the spot, you have to pay back four or five times what you stole, for us, Jesus, that's going to be a lifetime in prison because we don't make any money out here following you. I don't know how this is going to work, Jesus, but listen, you tell me to go and I'm going to do this. And so Jesus says, listen, here it is in verse 3. When somebody asks you, and this is all you need to say in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them and immediately he will send them. And so the owner's going to say, hey, hey, it's all right. You need those donkeys, you go ahead and take them. The authorities come back, hey, you know, it's, it's all right. You need those? Don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry. You're not going to be killed for it. You're not going to be arrested for it. Don't worry. It's all going to work out perfect. Then we skip down for a moment to just verse 6. In verse 6, we find out that it happens exactly like Jesus says. In verse 6, it says the disciples went and they did just as Jesus directed them, which means they did exactly what happened. What Jesus said, they walked into town, they found this donkey and her colt. They took it back to Jesus. Somebody asked, and so they gave the response, and the person said, let them go. In fact, Mark's, or excuse me, Luke's version of this story says they found it just as Jesus told them. Right? So I want you to think about this for a moment because there's more to this story than just finding two donkeys. You see, those donkeys had owners. And if the donkeys had owners, like I, talk, like I said just a moment ago, those owners were probably not too excited that some strangers that they'd never seen before showed up in town, untied their donkeys, and were getting ready to head out of town. Unless those two, or those owners of those two donkeys knew who Jesus was. And knew what his mission was. And those two donkeys, or the, the owners of those two donkeys, would have known that they wanted to be part of what Jesus was doing. You see, if they didn't believe that Jesus was Lord, then I don't think they would have let these men go. I don't think they would have let these men take their donkeys. They would have thought, man, this is some kind of scheme. That this city is full of, of, 
of people and everybody's just trying to get everything and this is just a never, another clever way for these two men to take something that doesn't belong to them. So I want you to understand this, that Jesus being this all-knowing God, he not only knows where the donkeys are at, he not only knows how many of them are at or where they're at and what kind they are, he knows who they belong to and he knows the hearts of those people. He knows that they'll be sympathetic to him and what he needs and he knows that they'll be part of the plan and the mission of God and he knows that they're willing to give whatever is needed. Otherwise, they wouldn't let two strangers walk out of town with their donkeys without any promise of ever coming back. So I want you to listen. While we don't know the name of the owners of the donkey, Scripture never tells us that. I want you to see the beauty of this. Those owners, whoever they are, get the privilege of knowing that they were used by God in a way that met the Lord's needs. Right? They were used in a way that when Jesus, I want you to think about this, this is where I would be, that, um, that when Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem, picture that parade for Baylor University in a moment, and, and all this same kind of uh, beauty going on, and all this parade, uh, this would be me. I'd be sitting there, like, you see that donkey he's sitting on? That's mine. I own that donkey. I let him borrow it for the day. That's Jesus, but I let him borrow my donkey for the day. Like, we don't have that in Scripture. That's just the Michael Rakes version, but that is totally where I would be. I'd be like, see that donkey? That's mine. See that little colt? I raised that thing. I, 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 that was all mine, all right? So I want you to understand this, that we don't have any of this name, but they get to be part of the mission of God. And the only reason they get to be part of the mission of God is because the all-knowing Jesus knew their heart and knew they would be willing to be part of the mission of God, that the all-knowing God of creation was going to choose their donkey to ride into town because this omniscient, all-knowing God knew that their hearts would be willing to let go of it. And be willing to be used in any way they could. Now listen to me. If Jesus knew that about the owner of two donkeys in a town that he hadn't gotten to yet, then guess what? He knows the same thing about the 130, 140, however many people that are sitting here and the 100 people or whatever watching online. He knows the exact same thing about you and me. He knows our heart. He knows our willingness. He knows who he can count on to step up and be used and allow our stuff to be used for glory, which also means he knows who's not willing. He knows who's not willing to step up and not be used. He knows those who's gifted with things and blessed with things, and yet you are holding on to those things, and you're saying, listen, I don't care if Jesus has a need for this. I don't care if the church says they have a need for this. This is mine. This is my time. This is my money. This is my energy. This is mine. And I don't allow anybody to use it. You see, Jesus knows and for some of you, you're looking to find a place to serve it. And you're like, well, I just, I have this feeling that I need to be doing something. And the reason you're not doing something is because Jesus hasn't opened the door to you to do something. Because he knows that even if he opened the door, you wouldn't take it. Why? Because these donkeys are mine. Some of us are hoarding the blessings that God has given us and we're not allowing Him to use it or we're not allowing Him to use us. And so we're, we're holding on to all of this stuff that doesn't belong to us in the first place. And some of us, we're fine just hoarding our blessings and sitting on the sidelines, not willing to be used by Him or for His glory. And for some of us, the reason that, that we praise Him is because we know that His knowledge of us is not limited to the physical. It is not limited to what people see or what people measure of us or what people think about us. It's not limited to what other people measure us by. It's simply that the all-knowing God measures us by the willingness of our heart that is inside of us. It penetrates the very heart and soul of every single one of us. And so whatever he's given you may be very different than what he's given me. 
What He's given you to use and be blessed with is very different than what He's given me. You know, we, we assume that the owners of these two donkeys join in this crowd and they're singing and they're shouting and they're yelling, but well, we don't know. You know what I do know? They had two donkeys. And when Jesus had need of these two donkeys, they were willing to let go of them and let Jesus have them. And so for some of us, we need to let, question ourselves, if the all-knowing God needed something from us, would we be willing to do it? You see, not only is He all-knowing in the condition of our hearts, but He's also all-knowing in the events of the future. I want you to remember when we were going through this text, we were in verse 3, then we skipped down to verse 6. And so I want to back up for a moment to verse 4. Uh, and I want, you to sh- I want to show you what I mean. And see, talking about Jesus and how He would enter this city in verse 4, Matthew writes this. He says, This took place, all of this preparation took place, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And then in verse 5, he, he, we'll look at that in just a moment, but in verse 5, he, he, he talks about this prophecy uh, from Zechariah, and it's pretty amazing because Zechariah was a prophet. Um, he lived in about 500 B.C., and he writes this prophecy. It's very specific. He gives it a certain time of it, but it's right about 520 B.C., Right? So 520 years before Christ was even born. And so you take 520 years, add to it the 33 years of Jesus' life, and you start to realize that God told us the details of this event 550 years in advance. Right? And here's something even more amazing. That's when he told us. Right? That's not when he knew it. That's not when he planned it. That's not when he set the wheels in motion for it all to happen. That's when he told us that 550 years before Jesus came riding into town on this donkey, that God knew it was going to happen, that God told us it was going to happen. And so this all-knowing God that we serve and worship, guess what? He's not surprised by tomorrow. We shouldn't be surprised that God knows the future because He tells us the future 550 years in advance. That's when He tells us. And so He's, he's got this God who's not surprised by tomorrow. He's not bewildered by the events that shake our world that we could never even imagine. When COVID took the world by storm, guess what? God already knew it. When the whole world was scratching its head trying to figure out what's going to happen next, God already knows it. You see, for God, there's never an unforeseen or unexpected event for Him. He's never losing sleep over whether the stock market is going to be higher or lower next week or a year from now. He already knows. God doesn't lose sleep worrying about all the what-ifs of tomorrow or next week or next month, or next year, or the next decade. He already knows them. And even better part, not only does He know them, He's planning them, and He's working them, and He set the wheels for them in motion thousands of years ago. And so what does that mean for you and me? Here's what it means. If I fully praise Him, if He is my King forever, then if God doesn't lose sleep over what tomorrow holds, then I probably shouldn't lose sleep over what tomorrow holds either. You know what I should do? I should praise the one who holds tomorrow in his hands. I should praise the one who is, who is holding the next decade and the next 500 years in the palm of his hands. And he has it all planned out. And if this God can, can not only know the future, but if this same God can put a donkey in a colt in a village owned by a believer of Christ at just the right moment and just at the right time, then maybe I need to have confidence in him and quit worrying about what I'm going to do tomorrow. See, God doesn't lose sleep over tomorrow, and we shouldn't either. And see, this shows me that maybe we need a little more confidence in the God that we say that we worship than the God that we lose sleep over, because what if tomorrow isn't right? It's going to be. 
It's going to be because the God that we serve can put a donkey and be owned by the right person in the right spot, in the right time, in the right place, just at the moment that it was to be. And so we need to quit losing sleep over what tomorrow in the future holds and put a faith and trust in a God who is all-knowing. You see, but the people of Jerusalem, they didn't come just to praise Jesus because He was all-knowing. They came to praise Him because of what we just sang just a moment ago. Because He is our King. You see, there's this prophecy of Zechariah. And this prophecy, we spend a whole lot of time talking about this method that, that this prophecy tells us, how he's going to get there. And we'll get to that in just a second. But before he tells us kind of how he's going to get there into this place, it gives us this characteristic. And so in the first part of verse 5, Matthew starts quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And uh, in verse 5, he tells us, we're only going to look at the first part for right now. He says, tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you. And he, and we'll, we'll come back to the rest of that verse in just a moment. So uh, there's a whole lot to unpack here. And so the first thing he, he refers to is daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is a way of referring to the city of Jerusalem. So he's telling you where this king is coming. And for Israel, this is significant because for, for them, Jerusalem was the capital of their kingdom. When King David and King Solomon, when Israel was at its peak, this was its capital. And so this is where the king is coming. Then he gives this other detail that sometimes we often overlook, and it's this tiny little word, your. Your king is coming. Not a king is coming, but your king. And, and so this king that they're expecting, he's your king because he's one of you. Right Now, to catch the significance of that and why this word your is so, so important, i got to remind you of two things. Right? One, Zechariah wrote this prophecy in 520 B.C., Jerusalem fell, was conquered by the Babylonians in 486 or 487, somewhere in 480-something, right, B.C., which means when Zechariah wrote this prophecy, there was no king in Israel. Israel wasn't even a kingdom anymore. They'd been taken over, they'd been ruled, and they were being ruled by the Babylonians at the time. And so when he's telling them this, he says, listen, there's going to be a king that's coming, and he's not from the Babylonians, he's going to be from you. Now, fast forward to the time when Jesus shows up on the scene and the Israelites still haven't had a king. At no point in their history since Zechariah until Jesus did they have a king sitting on a throne. They're back in Jerusalem. The city's been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. But there's no palace for the king of Jerusalem because there's not a king in Jerusalem. In fact, they're still controlled by a foreign power. It's just different. Now it's the Romans instead of the Babylonians. And so when, when the people are saying this and they see this prophecy, they're reminded of the fact that there's a king coming, and this king is not the Roman king who has authority over us. He's not the Babylonian king who ruled over us and destroyed us. He is one of us. He is one of our own. He, he is for us, and he's part of who we are. His king, or This king is from within He's not this foreign ruler that's going to come and take our area by force. He is your king. He's one of you. And so listen, we don't have to limit this to the nation of Israel or even the city of Jerusalem because this prophecy is true for you and for me as well because it speaks of the deity and the humanity of Christ. He is our king because he is divine, because he is God, but he's our king also because he's one of us. He is human just like us. He took on flesh and became one of us. He, he felt the same pain that we felt when he got up and he walked through the kitchen in the middle of the night and he stumped his little toe on the kitchen table. Guess what? It hurt just like it does you. When he was working in the carpentry shop and, and, he, and he got a little too close with a knife, he cut his finger and it bled just like you. His body grew tired and it needed rest just like yours so he is your king and he is our king because he is one of us 
But don't let the us get so comfortable that we forget that the title that comes after that, he is your king. He's not your buddy. He's not your friend. He's not your amigo that you hang out with on Friday nights. He is your king. He is the ruler of your life. He is the one who gets to call the shots that we are in submission to him. And I got to tell you this because this is where our culture and our faith come in conflict with each other. This is where our society really hits against the faith that we have because we live in a society and we surround ourselves with a culture that tells you you are your king. We live in a society and a culture that tells us there is only one number one in your life and you're it. Everybody else is to bow down to live to you, that you are the center of your own universe, that you are the creator of your own destiny, that everything revolves around you. And the words of Scripture is there is nothing further from the truth. You are not the center of your own universe. You are not the, the, destiny. You are not the, the writer of your own destiny. You're not the one that calls the shots in your life. He is your king. You see, he's not your advisor. He, he's not this picture uh, of the spiritual leader that comes in and tells you some words to build your kingdom however you want to, and you get to, to take the advice or leave the advice when you please. Now, see, the, his authority is all-encompassing. It uncovers every part of your life, and society tells us the words of Jesus, they're just advice, and you can take them or leave them, but that's not what Scripture tells us. What does it tell us? Your king is coming. In commenting on this passage, John MacArthur wrote this. He says, There is always a place in the world for the Jesus that people want. But just not always a place for the Jesus who is. He didn't come to fulfill your dreams. He didn't come to bring you prosperity and happiness. He didn't come to give you your carnal desires and your want. He came to attack your false religion and to attack your sin. You see, I would add this, that Jesus didn't come and die so that you can continue turning your back on the God who loved you and sent him. He didn't come to be your advisor that you could listen to and you could walk away from and ignore when you wanted to. He came to be the Lord and King of your life. And you either choose to accept him and praise him as that, or you turn your back on him altogether. There is no middle ground. You don't get to pick and choose what Jesus says. You don't get to pick and choose the standard that you have to live up to. You don't get to pick and choose whether he's my king today or not forever or he's not. He is your king forever or he's not your king at all. He's either worthy or praised because he's all-knowing. He's worthy or praised because he is our king forever or he's not. And if he's not king forever, then maybe our praise is really not worthy of him because he is worthy of all of our praise. And maybe if he's not our king, then our, word, our praise is not worthy of him. But see, there's something different about this king. Not only is he king, but he is also gentle. You see, most kings rule by force. And they take territories and they conquer people by violence. They, they, their subjects submit to them out of intimidation and, and fear. They, they display their superiority over people by displaying their military might, their wealth, and their victories and their past over enemies. You see, they were very used to seeing kings. They were very used to seeing generals ride in. But this one's different. Verse 5 tells us that he's different, why he's different, and why he displays how he is different. In verse 5, it says, Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is gentle. And there's another word that you can be used to translate that. It can be used as meek. Right? Now, don't confuse the word meek and weak. Right? Those are two very separate words. You see, weak means you don't have the power or the authority or the ability to do something. 
That is very different than someone who is meek and someone who is gentle. Because someone who is meek and gentle, they have the power. They have the authority and they have the ability to do whatever it is that they want to do. They just choose maybe not to exercise that. You see, someone who is meek chooses to realize that the power they have doesn't come from themselves. One author describes it this way. He says that someone who is meek is someone who is fully relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. It is a quality that stems from trust in God's goodness and control over a situation. You see, Jesus is gentle and he is meek, but he is by no means weak. He is gentle and meek because he knows that God is in control. He is gentle and meek because he has the ability to force us into submission, the ability to force us to praise him, the ability to force us to worship him as king, but he doesn't. Instead, he offers us this opportunity. He offers us this invitation. He offers us this chance to come in here on a Sunday morning together online on Sunday morning. He offers this invitation for us. And it gives you the chance to reject it or accept it. He offers this chance to come in to see him. And he doesn't come in Jerusalem riding on this white stallion like a Roman general, demanding that everyone bow down to him. He comes in riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And he comes with humility, he comes with gentleness, he comes with compassion. And he comes not as a conquering king, but he comes as a humble prince. With a prophecy at the beginning of his life. That he would be the prince of peace. He is this gentle prince of peace. And he doesn't rule by force. He rules by compassion. He rules because he is a gentle, peaceful king. And because of his compassion, he is the king who saves. And the one who brings salvation. This is the last thing and the beautiful thing that this passage tells us when it answers, who is he? You see, the two disciples... They complete their special mission. They go and they get these two donkeys. And they're amazed that it happened just like Jesus said. And you would think after following this dude for three years, they wouldn't be shocked by him. But I'm going to tell you, if you ever reach a point in your life where you're not shocked by him, then maybe you need to go back and visit him more. Because we should all be shocked by him every single day. But listen, these, these two disciples, they go and they, they find these donkeys and they bring these donkeys back to him. And, and, and they lay their coats and their robes over him. Over, excuse me, not over him, over the donkeys. And Jesus starts to climb up to them. And starts to climb up on these donkeys and, and set on them. And so I want you to imagine that like I told you at the beginning, everybody is converging on Jerusalem. And so there are a lot of people traveling down the road behind Jesus and the disciples who have now caught up because Jesus kind of took this little stop. He paused for a moment to let these disciples go get the donkeys and bring them back to him. And so now there's people who have kind of caught up to him in line. There, there's people that are, are, are kind of at the rest stop and they're just waiting. And all of a sudden they see Jesus climb up on these donkeys. And then they start this praise time. They start this immense moment of worship. Some of them take their robes off and they lay their robes out on the floor in front of them. Some of them are cutting palm branches and, and branches off of trees. Not like the trees we have here, but the, the big palm branches that have the big leaves. They're cutting those and they're laying them out on the, on the ground so that the donkeys can walk on them. Man, they are giving Jesus this, this makeshift red carpet entry. If there's ever been a red carpet in the Bible, this is it. This is this royal red carpet entry. And then verse 9 shows us that, that they're not just, they're so bursting with energy that the, even the carpet treatment is not enough for him. But in verse nine, 9, it says, The crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
Now, I've got to be honest with you, you may not use the word Hosanna very often. In fact, you may not have even heard that word before. It's actually made up of, of two Hebrew words with the name of God sandwiched right in the middle of them. And so the first Hebrew word means, oh, or, or, or it's kind of calling out like, hey, please. Right? It's kind of this, this begging. And then you have God's name in the middle. And so it's, oh, God, or, or please, God. And then the last part of it is save. So, oh, God, save us. This is a pleading and a begging of God to save us, to bring salvation to us. This is a pleading and a begging, uh, when we use this word, for God to act on our behalf, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to bring salvation for us. And this is exactly what Jesus is headed into Jerusalem to do in the first place. You see, he's headed in Jerusalem to do this, to save them, but not from the Romans like they're expecting. He's bringing them salvation to do for them what they cannot not do for themselves. He's going to defeat a greater enemy than the Romans. He's coming into Jerusalem to bring them salvation, not just for this lifetime, but for all eternity. He's headed in Jerusalem to give his life, to take away their sin and their guilt and their shame. He's going to be hung on a cross so that you and I can be washed clean and purified by his blood, that we can be made pure and holy once and forever so that we can be reconciled and reconnected back in this relationship with a loving father. And some of you sitting here this morning, you're asking that question at the end of verse 10. Who is this? And the answer is, He's the one that came to redeem you. He's the one that came to reconnect you to the Father who loves you and created you. And so some of you, you came with this question of who is He because you're missing something in your life. You're looking for something and you're trying to find contentment. You're trying to find satisfaction. You're trying to find something that's going to make you satisfied and complete in, in this world. And something that's going to make sense in this world. And the only answer that is ever going to satisfy, the only answer that's ever going to make this make sense is when you're reconnected back into relationship with God like you were meant and created to be. And the only one that can do that is this one who's riding in on a donkey. This one who, who we are begging and pleading for salvation with. This one who's going to reconnect us and allow us to rebuild this relationship with the creator of our soul. And I want to share with you this morning, you will never find satisfaction. You'll never find contentment anywhere else until you have that relationship with your creator. Now, for some of you sitting in this room, maybe today is the day that you cry out, Hosanna. Maybe today is the day that you cry out, God, save me. Reconnect me and put me back in a relationship with you because I know that's what I'm missing. But there's some of us sitting in this room, we know the answer to that question. We know at the end of verse 10, we know who Jesus is. We've already accepted Him as our Savior and King. The question is, are, are we committed to living the life of this gentle, all-knowing king. And so the challenge for us is not the end of the verse. It's not the question at the end. It's are we living out the beginning of the verse. I want you to look with me back in verse 10 for just a moment. Verse 10, it ends with, or starts with this. So he entered Jerusalem, and the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this. You see, the challenge of the first part of verse 10 is to praise Jesus in such a way that it starts and ignites a movement that spreads across and shakes the entire city of Cleveland, Woodleaf, Mount Ola, West Rowan, North Carolina, the United States, and around the whole world. It is the challenge to praise Jesus in such a way that our life makes a difference to those that are around us and they notice a difference and they ask the questions of who is this, that our life that we live 
ought to make or praise Jesus in such a way that those that we come in contact with ask this question, who is this Jesus that you keep talking about? And so the challenge of us as a church, and let me ask us as a church, is your praise sufficient for him? Is it city shaking? Is it life changing? Does it make other people want to love the Jesus that you love? Does it make other people want to know the Jesus who saves and know the Jesus that you know? Does it make other people want to praise Him? And is there evidence in your life, in your praise, that makes other people look at you and say, I don't know who you're talking about, but I want to know Him. Who is He? You see, our question for many of us is not who is He. The question for many of us said in here, we know that answer. Is our praise sufficient enough to shake this city that we live in? Is our praise sufficient enough that when we stand and we sing about our King forever, this whole area knows that there's a difference in who this man is and the difference that he's made in our life. And see, for some of us, we used to be there. For some of us, maybe it's been a long time since we've been there. And if that's the case, and the answer to those questions is, is your faith city shaken? And your answer is no. Then maybe today is the day that you lay down the robes and you cut down the branches and you put them down on the ground. You don't care what anybody else thinks. You don't care about what people beside you are going to think about you. All you care about in this next few moments is the one that's coming riding on a donkey. The one who came and saved your soul from hell for all eternity. And is your praise sufficient enough to shake this city for Him? And so if not, then it's time to lay down your robe. It's time to join in this crowd. It's time to raise your voice and not just sing words on the screen, but let's shake the whole city of Cleveland and Mount Ola and Woodleaf and all of Western Rowan County with our praise this morning. Let's pray together.